Luke chapter 15, and uh, starting in verse number 11. And he said, Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto him his living. It's in his inheritance. The father or the son wanted uh, his inheritance before his father actually uh, is passed away. Kind of cruel, but that's what the father or that's what the son wants. Verse number 13, not many days after that, uh, the younger son gathered all together, all of his inheritance, all of his stuff, all of his possessions, and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living, with, with wild living. And when he had spent all, all of his inheritance, all of his money, there arose a mighty famine in that land. A famine is when there's a dry spell. Nothing is growing. There's no agricultural uh, agriculture being grown. And he began to be in want. He got hungry. And when he uh, and he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled, he would have loved to fill his belly with the husks that the swine, the pigs, did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, the, the son, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise, go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and am no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. When he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Amazing story. We're covering half of it today, and we'll cover the second half next Sunday. And we're starting a new sermon series, just a quick two-week sermon series called Home. And that's what we're going to be talking about. That's the theme of this week and next week is this theme of home. And uh, so we're starting this brand new sermon series, and uh, it's a parable, a story that Jesus tells while he is on earth, and he is in Israel speaking to all the people. He's preaching, teaching, going to crowds, going from city to city, teaching people. And he tells this story of two sons and a father. The prodigal son is the, the, the name of the story. And I love this story because it's all about home. It's all about home. How many of you guys love home? I, I'm just going to be honest with you guys this morning. I'm a homebody. It, there it is. I'm a homebody. I could spend all day at home uh, reading a book, watching a show, eating cereal, not speaking to anybody the rest of the day, and I'd be a happy camper. I'm a homebody. I, if I could go an entire week, you give me a movie, a box of ice cream, a good book, and in uh, a big screen TV, I could go an entire week without talking to anybody, I'd be just fine. I know some of you extroverts, you, you have to talk to people. You find your energy in talking to people. I'm an introvert by nature. I love to talk to my cat and nobody else, right? Love my cat and my wife, and if I was, you know, that, that'd be fine. That'd be fine. It'd be a great day for me. I love being home. I could spend all day at home. Why? Because home is comfortable. Home is the place we find refuge, right? It's the place where we find we can let down our guard. We can experience the joy of family. We can experience the joy of friendship at home. Home is the place where we find acceptance. Home is the place where we're encouraged to grow. Home is, home is the best. And this story that we're about, to, we're about to talk about is all about home. The story is one young man's journey to find home. This is what we're all on a journey to find. 
We're all on this same journey. All of humanity, and this, this, this young man, this son, represents all of humanity because we are all on a journey to find home. We're all on a journey to find peace. We're all on a journey to find the, the missing part of our soul. We're on a journey to find wholeness, to find completion. And he's, he's looking for a physical home. But we're, we're all, as humans, we're all on a journey to find a home for our soul, a home for the place that's missing in our heart, in our soul. More specifically and most importantly, the soul of every human is looking for a home. And that's what Jesus is speaking to uh, when he tells this story. The soul of every human is on a, a lifelong journey for home. And the prodigal son is a picture of that journey. He was desperately trying to find home. He traveled to a far land to find it, but it wasn't there. He indulged in wild living, but he didn't find it in that. He wasted all of his living, but he didn't find it in that either. He spent all of his money and inheritance, but he couldn't find it in that either. No matter what he did, he couldn't find what he was searching for until, verse number 20, when he's reunited with his father. And we're going to talk about that later on. So the story gives us insight into how an individual can find home for their soul. How an individual can come to Christ and find Christ. And it also shows us how we can help those who are searching for Christ find Christ. So let's look at the story. Verse number 13 and 14. And not many days after, the young son gathered all together. He gathered his inheritance and took his journey into a far country, wasted his substance with riotous living, with wild living, and he spent all. There arose a mighty famine in the land and began to be in war. So this story is pretty self-explanatory. After this young man, he collected all of his inheritance from his father. He says to himself, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go into a far country. I'm going to go into a far country. I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to begin to find myself in this far country. And at first, at first, the son probably thought he had a good life. When he had all of his money, he had all of his inheritance, he's in this far country, he's living the life he's always wanted to live, things are pretty good, his pockets are full of cash, his bank account is full of assets, he's doing pretty good, so he lives it up. He just lives, and it seems like everything is going pretty well at first, until he realized the choices he had made, while momentarily pleasing, had actually left him empty and in want. His decision to blow all his money had left him broke. Novel idea, right? When you blow all of your money, you, you're, you're broke. Obviously, you can tell this is a young man, probably college age. He hasn't put two and two together. You spend all your money. You're not going to have any money left over. To add insult to injury, what the prodigal son could have never foreseen before he went on his journey to a far country is that a famine would arise in the land. That means there would be no food for anybody to buy. There would be no food for anybody to purchase, anybody to live off of. And he's in this far country, so he's... So he's blown all of his money, he's blown his inheritance, and to add insult to injury, he's in this far country, and he has no food, and he has no job. So let's look at verse number 15 and 16. What does he do? He went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. He looked for a job. Novel idea. That should have been his, he should have led with that. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have faint, he would have loved to fill his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave into him. So not only was he broke in a foreign city, but there was no food there either. So he looks for a job. And the only employment he can find is for a pig farmer. Now, being a Jew, and Jesus is telling this story to a bunch of Jewish people, this would have been a very offensive thing for them to hear, that this young son went and became an employee of a pig farmer. For this young son, this would have been very offensive. He would have been turning his back, essentially, on every 
piece of religion that he had grown up with. This was, he wouldn't, you don't just don't do this because uh, pigs were unclean animals in Jewish society. You did not eat pigs. You didn't even think about eating pigs. And yet he is working for a pig farmer and he's feeding the pigs and he's so hungry because of this famine that he looks at all the slop that the pigs are eating and he wishes he could eat it, but he can't. And then it gets even worse. He's broke. He's working for a pig farmer. He's lost all of his inheritance. There's a famine in the land. And the friends that he's thought he's made while he's in this far country, turns out they weren't actually friends because you see at the bottom of verse number uh, 16, no man gave unto him. So he goes all of his friends. He goes all of his, the people that he thought were his buddies. And he says, hey, do you have any food? Do you have any extra coin that I can borrow from you so that I can get by? And they all, they couldn't help him. So he's in this predicament. He's in this He's in this pig pen, and he's made a pigsty of his life, and he's at the bottom of the barrel. There's nowhere left to go. There's nothing he can do. He, this, this, this moment is, the, this is, he's hit rock bottom right here. This is the worst it can get. He has nowhere else to go. And then look what happens in verse number 17. And when he came to himself, when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? All the searching, all the destructive decisions, all the want, the hunger, and the pain culminated in this moment, this, this great inflection point in his life. It's in this moment that he finally, the Bible says, comes to himself. It means he comes to his senses. He finally comes to his senses and says, what am I doing here? I'm broke. I'm working for a pig farmer. I've turned my back on everything I believe. I've left a nice home. My father is back there. His servants probably have more food than I do. What am I doing with my life? He's finally come to his senses of all the things that, have cut, that could have caused the son to come to his senses and open his heart. It was this great inflection point in, this, in his life. It was, this, it was him hitting rock bottom in his life that took for him to finally come to his senses. And this is good news. This is good news to us because, because this means no matter how far someone is from God, God can still open their hearts to him. This means that no matter how hard someone falls, no matter if someone hits rock bottom, no matter if someone makes all the wrong decisions, makes all the wrong mistakes, he, makes all the th he does all the things he shouldn't do, he, f he completely flattens his own life. He is not beyond the reach of God. God can use the inflection point as a starting point. You notice that it took all of these things that were bad. It took all these bad things happening to the son for him to finally come to his senses, for him to finally come to himself and realize that his home was with his father. You realize that it took all of this. God was using this. And the story that Jesus is telling is that it took all of these events for the son to finally realize that home is with his father. That God can use all of these things happening in his life for good. God can use the inflection point as a starting point. God can use events in people's lives to ready their hearts for the gospel. Often he uses inflection points in life to do this. A death, a sickness, a transition, having a child, moving away, a job change, a divorce. In the moments when the people around us seem like they will never find God, the very thing that distances them from God might be the very thing that directs them to God. 
God can use all the things that might distance them to God uh, to direct them to God. God can use the inflection point as a starting point. When I think of this, I think of one of my favorite things to drink, and that's coffee. You know what a coffee bean looks like before it's roasted? Well, it's just like a green little bean, right? But you know what they do with the coffee bean? Because you can't use it when it's green. I mean, Starbucks has found a way to use it in their little drinks, but you, you can't really use the coffee bean unless it is roasted. And so I don't know how many of you guys have been to Intaza Coffee. Intaza Coffee is a place where they, they, they roast their own coffee. It's down the street, literally like two, three minutes away from here. They don't pay me to say this. I just like the coffee. It's good coffee. If you go there, you walk inside of the coffee shop, you'll find this massive coffee roaster. And you can see it's all rigged up for the coffee beans to come down. And this one little thing, that it's in this big vat. And the vat is twirling around. And it's roasting the coffee beans. And if you've been in there, while the coffee beans are being roasted, you can smell it. And it, and it just it warms the entire uh, coffee shop. And it's just it's an amazing experience. It's like, it's like Christmas. It's like Thanksgiving. It's, all, it's like happy thoughts, unicorns. It's like rainbow. It's like when you walk in there and they're roasting coffee, it's, just, it's great, right? So you walk in there and they're roasting coffee because... Because, 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 because you cannot use the coffee until it is brought under tremendous heat, until it's roasted. It's usable after, it takes this whole roasting process, coming under immense fire, intense heat, and after all of that, that's when you can take it. And it's not even done after that. You take that coffee bean after it's been roasted, after you've heated, heated the fire out of it, it's all black now, after that, you take the coffee bean, you put it in a grinder, you just smash, you smash this coffee bean until it's tiny little pieces, and then you pour steaming hot water over the coffee bean, and you have a nice warm cup of, uh, cup of coffee. It takes this entire process of being destroyed, of being heated up, of being lit on fire, of being turned around, of being picked off of a tree, and then finally it's usable. God is saying it doesn't matter what you're going through in life. It doesn't matter if you're coming under intense heat. It doesn't matter if you feel like your life is being chopped up into little pieces. It doesn't matter if you're coming under fire. It doesn't matter where you are, what you're going through. We are never out of the reach of God. God can use that inflection point, that great heat, that intense heating point in our life so that as a starting point. He can use the inflection point as a starting point to open our eyes to him, to open our hearts to him. God uses the events in people's lives to ready their hearts for the gospel. Never give up on the people in your life that need Jesus. He may use that sickness. He may use that lost job. He may use that job change. He may use that hurt to open their hearts. This story gives us hope that no matter how far from God someone seems or how averse to God they may act, they are still not beyond his reach. You see, when we look at a person's life and we see all the bad stuff they're going through, we think that person is a dead end. They will never come to Christ, but God can use and he can turn a dead end into a doorway. The thing you're going through is not a dead end. It might just be a doorway. You see this in Isaiah chapter 43, verse number 19. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness. I will make a way when it seems like there's no way. I will make uh, rivers in the desert where it's dry land. I will bring life to come out of that dry land. God can make a way when there seems to be no way. Even in the moments when they seem to be the farthest from God, they are still not too far from God. And that should fill us with hope. 
The prodigal son comes to his senses, and he realizes that his home is with his father. So he gets up, and he heads home. And look what happens when he finally reaches home. Look at verse number 20, the very beginning of uh, verse number 20. He travels all the way home. We don't know how long it took. It could have taken days. It could have taken weeks. And he arose and came to his father. And watch this. We're going to be splitting this verse into three little parts here. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. This is very interesting. This is a very interesting thing. The prodigal son returns home as he's walking up the road to the family farm. Jesus tells us something amazing about the father. Imagine this. Picture this in your own mind. The father, he's on his family farm, and his son, he, his, son, he comes, his son comes of age, and his son tells him, I want the inheritance that is owed to me, and I'm going to leave. So his son, he, gets, he gathers his inheritance, he gathers all of his money, he leaves to a far country. You would think that the father would give up on him, right? But he doesn't. The father, after this, I imagine, not, the Bible doesn't say this, but I imagine the father, every day after his son left, he gets up before the crack of dawn, because that's what farmers do. He gets up before the crack of dawn. He goes downstairs, he, he goes downstairs, he brews himself a cup of coffee. He goes out in the front porch, sits down on a rocking chair, and he watches the sun rise, and he keeps his eyes fixed on the road, waiting for the day his son will return home. In, in, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but I imagine he does this every morning because he's waiting for, he's anticipating the return of his son. His son was lost, but one day, the father hopes, his son will be found. And so that day finally comes. The day finally comes when the father, he gets up on this particular morning. He goes downstairs. He brews his coffee. And I imagine this guy, he probably was a hard, hard dude. He was a farmer. He probably got himself two pieces of toast, four pieces of bacon. He goes down, he has breakfast, and he has his coffee. And he watches the sun rise. Only this time, he sees a silhouette coming over the, uh, over the horizon. He sees this silhouette of his son walking up to him and he sees his son all the time that he's been gone finally he's come home he's watching it he's anticipating he's waiting for the day his son will return home this is a picture of Jesus this is an amazing picture of Jesus what Jesus as our father is doing for us waiting for us to return home waiting for us to come to our senses to finally say Jesus God is the person I need he is my father it is in him that I find home for my soul and Jesus is waiting for us to return home this is a picture of Jesus but but this isn't just a picture of Jesus this is a picture of who we are supposed to be you see, this isn't just a picture, it's a prescription. It's a prescription for us. It's a prescription of how we're supposed to live. We're always to be waiting for that person who's looking to find Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be waiting for that person, anticipating their, their, their return to Jesus, anticipating, waiting, standing by, waiting for that person to come to Jesus. You see, we are supposed to be on the lookout for the lost. We are supposed to be watching with open eyes, hoping and waiting to reach people with the gospel. We reach people when we have open eyes. We reach people when we have open eyes, waiting for them, anticipating. Expect God to bring someone onto your path. There are people all around us in our community, in our city, looking for hope, looking for Jesus. We're the people that are, be, that are, that are to be waiting for them, anticipating them. Hoping that they come. I think of this. I think of when we went to Oregon a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago now. We went to Oregon with my family. And uh, you can tell that we're from the city pretty much. We're, we're from the city. We spent some time in the, in the country, living in the country. But we're essentially from the city. And so whenever we get an opportunity to see deer, it's just 
and excited. It's just, we're, we're blown away. Animals, you know, like real live animals, not in a zoo caged up. And so we went on this vacation. We went to Oregon to see my grandparents, and we, we stayed at a cabin for a couple nights in the middle of nowhere along the Oregon, or, or along a river near next to the Oregon coast. And as we booked this particular cabin that we were going to stay at, they told us that there's bald eagles, there's animals all over the place, there's deer that walk through. And us, you know, I didn't think anybody, I didn't think that animals would actually come through the area. But as soon as we got there, we were setting up our, we were setting, getting, putting all of our, 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 our stuff away and we were looking around the campsite and we were looking around near the cabin and we saw deer. And the first time we saw deer, it was just, it was so exciting. And so after that first time we saw deer, as a bunch of city people, we were waiting for deer every single moment of every day that we were there. We were anticipating it. My, 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 my family, they were anticipating. I have a picture of it to prove it to you guys, how much we were looking forward to uh, seeing these deer. And so this is my mom, uh, and this is my little brother and some friends, and we found this deer. I had to zoom in. That's why it's bad. Uh, but but it, it, we had to, we, they, were, they were anticipating, waiting for the deer to come by. And anytime we heard rustle in the, in, the, in the trees, we'd look for it. And you know how we are. You know, we're from the city, so we have our, we have our iPhones. Everyone's got their phone. Oh, you know, it's just an awesome thing, a deer, as if, you know, nobody's seen those before. And so we were just waiting the entire time, anticipating, watching for deer to show up, watching for animals to show up. We saw bald eagles. So we had our phones at the ready every single day. And that's how God wants us to be when it comes to people. Waiting for people to come to Jesus, anticipating their return, waiting for their hearts to open up, waiting for them to say, just, just to give us a, just a little bit, just a foot in the door for them to wonder, Maybe things in my life would be better if I had met Jesus. Maybe things in my life would be better if I, if I come to church. Maybe things in my life would be a little bit better if I knew who Jesus was. Are you watching with open eyes for those who are looking for Christ? 1 Peter 3.15, the Bible says, But sanctify, set apart the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You know what he's saying here? The Apostle, oh, the Apostle Peter, he's saying here, he's saying always be ready to give an answer to someone who's searching for Jesus. Always be waiting for that. Always be ready. You know what's amazing about the father? Is he never tried to forget about his son. He didn't try to forget about his son. He could have focused on his life. He could have focused on his business, his farm, all the things that he had going on. Being the farmer is a very busy, busy life. Being a farmer is not an easy thing to do. No one would have blamed him if he had chosen to move on with his life. Okay, my, my son's gone. Forget about him. He's gone. It's done. There's nothing I can do about it. He doesn't forget about it. This is one of the great challenges of reaching people. This is one of the great challenges of, if you want to call it, evangelism. It's so easy, natural almost, to get tunnel vision and focus only on ourself. To get tunnel vision, to focus on my day, to focus on the uh, people in my immediate focus, to focus on the things that I need to get done in my life, the chores and the responsibilities, the bills that I need to pay, the problems that I need to solve, the decisions I need to make, the transitions I need to deal with, and the people in my life. It's so easy to get tunnel vision, almost like those horses you see that have the little blinders on. Sometimes it's easy to get those blinders on in our life where we're just focusing on ourselves. Jesus was never like that. Jesus was always focused on other people. 
He was always focused on others. If there is one thing that keeps believers from reaching other people, it's when we focus on ourselves. And this is why praying for the lost is so important. This is why having a prayer list, I know this sounds absolutely crazy, praying for people to meet Jesus Christ, this is an important part of uh, how we can reach people. Keep a list. Pray for them. This keeps our focus on others. I remember when I was in college, I had a bunch of friends who had family members that didn't know Jesus. And they were really like, they were burdened about it. I remember when I was in college, these, 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 these guys that I knew, these, these girls that I knew, they, would, they really wanted their family members, their mom or their dad, to come to Jesus. And so they'd pray and they'd pray and they'd pray and they'd tell some of us, some of us that were their friends, they'd say, I've been praying for my mom to trust Christ for 10, 15 years. I would, some of these kids would say, I can remember ever since I was a little kid, I'd be praying for my dad. And then I remember sometimes, not often, but sometimes, every once in a while throughout my years in college, that person would come up to me or he'd come up to a group of people and he said, and they would say, finally, I went home during Christmas break and finally my parents met Jesus. Finally, they trusted Jesus after all of these years of prayer, after 15 years of praying for my parents, finally they come to Jesus. You see, that's the stories that we can have. I want to be able to say years from now, I prayed for that person way back when. I've been praying for that person to come to Jesus. I've been praying for that person to find hope. I've been praying for that person to find Jesus. Prayer keeps our focus on Christ and the lost. It keeps our focus on Christ and the lost. So the father sees him from afar. Now look at what the father does after he sees him from afar off. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. The father saw his son a great way off, and his first reaction is love. Father's first response for his son was compassion. Maybe you're thinking, seems like a legitimate response. Why wouldn't you have anything but compassion for your son? Remember what he's done. Remember, imagine if you were in the father's uh, position. Imagine if you were in the father's shoes. Your son has said, essentially, I wish you were dead. I want your inheritance as if you were dead. I want the money that I would get if you were dead. And I'm going to take that money. I'm going to leave. And essentially what the father says, what the son does, is he takes this money. He takes the inheritance. He goes off to Vegas. He blows all of his money, all of his inheritance on the pool, on the table, on, on whatever they do in Vegas, okay? Whatever they do, he blows all of his money. He, he lives wildly, and he, he has no inheritance left. He has no money. He's literally working for a pig farmer because he has nothing else to do with his life. And he comes home because he's finally come to, come to his senses, which is good. But he comes home because he's come to his senses. And his dad, who sees him afar off, he obviously sees the way he's dressed. He looks like a pigsty because he's come from a pigsty. He's been living hog wild because he's come from a pig's. He's living hog wild. He doesn't have any money left. And his first reaction is compassion. I mean, I don't know about you. Maybe you're a better person than I am. But my first reaction, if I had a son who had done all of that, blown all the money I gave him, he looks like trash and he's come home to me. Maybe you're a better person than I am, but I wouldn't have, my first reaction wouldn't have been compassion. It would have been a lot of other emotions that were very, very strong, but that strong emotion would not have been compassion. I would have went up to my son. I would have been like, what are you doing here? Get out of my, or you know what? I would have said to my son, you can stay here, but you're living with the pigs. <laughs> you're, living with, you're living with the chickens. Uh, you're, you're not going to live with me. You're, I would, compassion would not have my, been my first response. And yet it is the first response of his father. 
That's an amazing thing. Again, this is a picture of Jesus Christ. We come to Jesus. We come to Jesus broken. We come to Jesus full of sin. We come to Jesus full of mistakes. We come to Jesus as we are, broken and sinful. And yet Jesus, his first reaction when he sees us is not anger. It's not, uh, it's not judgment. It's not condemnation. It's compassion. The first reaction Jesus has, he said to us, he said, I came not into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through me. His first reaction when he sees us is compassion in this. Again, this is not just a picture of Jesus. This is a prescription for us. When we see others that need Jesus Christ, our first, uh, first reaction should always be compassion. Our default attitude towards people who don't know Jesus should be compassion. We reach people when we have open hearts. This is a hard principle because we see society, right? We see culture. We see uh, people. We see our world. We see all the bad decisions that people make. We see CNN. We see Fox News. We see all the news. We see all the bad things. We see people at Albertsons. We see people at Costco. And I'm always angry when I walk, walk into Costco because everybody has a shopping cart and they're going half a mile an hour. And so angry going into Costco. You guys like me, you get angry all the time when you see people. You're on the road, the first reaction, the first emotion when you're on the road is anger. Someone can go five miles under the speed limit or five miles over the speed limit and it's never enough. Right? You get mad all the time. Every time I'm on the road. As soon as I get in my car and my hand touches the steering wheel, I'm mad. I'm angry at something. Right? I'm just, my first reaction, and yet... Jesus, he says to us, I want your first reaction when you see people, when you interact with people, when you see people who are broken, when you see people who are far from me, when you see people who do not deserve compassion, have compassion anyway. When you see people who do not deserve the love of Jesus Christ, have love on them anyway because Jesus still does. Compassion ought to always be our first reaction. Our reaction ought to be compassion. Our reaction ought to be compassion. I was talking to a friend of mine. He doesn't, he, he's not a believer. He doesn't know Jesus. I was talking to a friend of mine. His name is Isaiah this, uh, this past week. And um, he, he, he stopped me as I, was leaving, as I was leaving our fitness center at our apartments. And he stopped me and said, hey, how are you doing? He works at, uh, on the grounds at our apartments. He said, hey, how are you doing? And uh, he says, oh, I, great. I told him, great. Things are going well. How are you doing? Just got out of the gym. I'm, I hated my life for that, but now I'm glad I'm out of the gym. And he says, oh, that's great. And uh, he says, man, I, I, he starts to tell me about his life living in here, here in Murrieta. And I said, yeah, we love here living in Murrieta. And he says, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't really enjoy living in Murrieta too much. And he said to me, I, I kind of feel like when I'm around people, I'm, I'm judged because of the way I look. He's telling me this. Couldn't believe it. I, don't really, I didn't really, you know, try to be friends with the guy, but I don't really know. He's telling me, I feel judged when I, when I walk around town, when I'm around people. I feel like people, when they look at me, they're kind of looking at me the wrong way because of, because of who I am. And I, I, said, I, I said to him, you know what, don't, don't worry about that. You know, you do have friends. I'm, I'm a friend. I, I just met you, but I'm a friend. You have friends. Don't worry. Let's hang out sometime. I gave him my number. He gave me his number. Let's hang out sometime. I thought, you know, it's one thing to be judged by the people in your community, right? That, you have no control over that. But as believers, we should always have compassion on people, regardless of what they look like, regardless of their lifestyle, regardless of whether we agree with them or not. Our first reaction ought to be compassion. That ought to be our first reaction. You see, Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 9, verse number 36, when he saw the multitudes, he was filled with compassion. 
moved with compassion on them. Did he have a reason to be filled with compassion? No. These people would one day kill him, yet his first reaction is to have compassion. When Jesus saw people, he was filled with compassion. Why? Because, because Jesus saw the soul behind the sin. Jesus didn't look at the brokenness. Jesus didn't see the sin. He saw the solution to the sin. He didn't see the sin. He saw the soul behind the sin. You know, I see, when I see people, it's so easy for me to look at the problems of people. It's so easy for me to pick out all the things I don't like about people. When Jesus sees people, he doesn't see the brokenness. He sees the fix to the brokenness. He sees how he can heal the brokenness. We can fix, or we can focus on the sin, or we can focus on the solution. Jesus understood that the only way to heal all the brokenness of people was to connect them to the Father. We reach people when we have open hearts. But there's one thing, one more thing the Father does. One more thing the Father does. Look at the end of verse number 20. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, off his father saw him, had compassion on him, ran, and fell on his neck and kissed him. After the father saw his son, he sees him from a great distance. He saw his son before his son saw him. After that, he has compassion on him. His default attitude was compassion. And then, and then, he doesn't wait for his son to continue walking down the road or stumbling down the road. He doesn't wait for his starving son to come to him. He comes to his son. He doesn't wait for his son to walk to him. He runs to his son. He engages his son. He he makes a way to his son. And that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. When we were coming to him or when we were running away from him, Jesus was running to us. Jesus is heading towards us. He came to earth for us. He died for us. When we were far from God, Jesus came close to us. He made a way to us. And that ought always to be the, 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 the testimony, the example, the reputation of the believer, that we engage people, that we run to people, we find the hurting, we find those who need Jesus Christ. He didn't wait until it was a comfortable distance. He engaged his son. We reach people when we engage people. Don't wait for someone to come to you. You go to them. Yes, we need to anticipate God to, to bring people onto our path, and we need to have compassion on the lost, but we are called to go to the lost. Engage people who are far from God. You know, Barna Research produced a study this past year on evangelism in the church, on, on reaching people in the church. Their research concluded that less than 50% of Christians have shared their faith even twice in the past year. Less than 50%. Jesus went to all people especially the people who weren't like him. He went to the sinners. He went to the tax collectors. He went to the Samaritans, the Romans, the Gentiles, all of the people he wasn't supposed to go to. Those are the people he goes to. We must intentionally engage and interact with the lost. You see this in Matthew chapter 25, uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. Go ye therefore, Jesus says, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. He says, go ye. He doesn't say wait for them to come to you. Go to them. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. You can't take go out of gospel. You can't take go out of gospel. If we're going to be believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we must go. That's why we have days like plus one Sunday. 
That's why we have Plus One Sunday. It's exactly that. It's an opportunity to live out the great commission that Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 28. Engage the lost. You know the tendency of Christians is to segregate themselves from unbelievers? This is the tendency of Christians to segregate themselves from people who don't think like they do, from people who don't believe like they do, from people who uh, don't consider themselves believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And so that the end result is the only people we know are people who are Christians. The only people we hang out with are believers. And, and to an extent, this is a good thing, but to an extent, this is a bad thing because we're called to engage the lost, to go to the world, to uh, engage people. In the same study that Barna Research produced on evangelism in the church, another conclusion of their study showed uh, was, was that almost 40% of practicing Christians say they have no non-Christian friends or family members. Now, in a sense, this is good, but in a very real sense, this isn't good. Because if we, know no, if we don't have any relationships with people who don't know Jesus, how can we give the gospel? How can we give the gospel to people who've already heard it? Find people around you who don't know Jesus or have left the church. We cannot wait for them to come to us. We have to go to them. We have to initiate. You know what we're supposed to be like? Here, I'll illustrate it to you this way. I have some fairly warm water with me this morning. And I have a, a big bag of tea. This water represents the world. This tea represents us. And hopefully this works out. This world we live in. You know what Jesus wants us to be in this world? While we're in this world, full of brokenness, full of fluidity, full of sin, full of people who need Jesus, full of people who don't believe the way we do, full of people who perhaps when they see us, they don't have compassion, people who don't forgive, people who are angry, people who are far from Jesus. That's, that's the world in which we live. Jesus says, I want you to be, this is, this is us. You're the believer. We're the believer. We're the follower of Jesus. When you engage the world, I don't want the world to change you. I want you to change the world. So that when we are entering into the world, sometimes it takes a minute for us, right? So we engage the world. The world doesn't change us. We affect change in the world. Very simple idea here. But it's true nonetheless. You know what the answer as a Christian is not? Which is sometimes what we like to do? Is to wall ourselves off from the world. We don't want to engage in the world. It's scary. We don't want to engage in the world. We don't want to, we don't want to give the message of Jesus. We don't want to give the gospel to anybody. We don't want to invite anybody to church because it's scary. That's legitimate. I understand that. It is scary. But Jesus, if he was willing to come to us, to, to breach the universe, to, to move from heaven to earth, to come to us, to not just sacrifice, uh, sacrifice some time, not just to sacrifice his, his feelings, but to sacrifice his life, then I think wherever we are, whether we are at work, whether we are uh, at Albertsons, whether we're at the store, whether we're at school, whether we're in a class, whether we are with other family, whether we are with friends, we, are ought, to be, we ought to be affecting change in our world, engaging the lost with the gospel, 
giving the gospel to people. That is our mission. The mission of Restoration Baptist Church is first the mission that Jesus gave us to lead all people in this world to Jesus Christ. That is our mission. And that is a mission we can accomplish. There are people all around us every day who are searching for Jesus Christ. There are people all around us who are all over our city who are looking for home, who are looking for a home for their soul. Imagine what could happen. Imagine what could happen if we were there to point the way when they were looking for a home. Imagine if we were there to point the way when they're looking for Jesus. That's the decision we can make every single day to affect change in our world or not. That's our decision.